Please stand for the reading of God's Word. Today's scripture is John 13, verses 31 to 38. When he, that is Judas Iscariot, had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. This is God's word. The final words from last week's passage read, And it was night. These ominous words cast a shadow over our passage today, for they speak of the spiritual condition of Israel from the time that Judas leaves the upper room until the women behold the risen Jesus Christ. You see, John uses the words night and darkness to portray spiritual darkness. He opens his book talking about Jesus being the life and the light. And in verse 5 of the first chapter, he says, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus summarized his mission. He was coming into a spiritually dark and dead world to come and bring life and light into that world. When Satan entered Judas that night, that began the final journey to the cross. It was finally the hour for Jesus. And Satan controlled nearly everyone from that moment on. So when Judas leaves, it says, it is dark. It is night. For Satan ruled him. And he went off to sell Jesus to the religious leaders. And by making a pact with Judas, they were making a pact with the devil himself. We see the fingerprints of the devil on the soldiers who so brutalized Jesus. We see him on Pilate, who knew Jesus was innocent and yet condemned him to death. We see it in the lives of the disciples. In Luke 22, Jesus says to Peter, Simon Peter, 
Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Satan not only sifted Peter, he sifted Peter's brothers, the disciples. Satan was in control. He seemed to be ruling all. It was dark. How did Jesus face that darkness? Hebrews chapter 12 tells us that Jesus endured the cross and despised the shame because of the joy that was set before him. The writer of Hebrews never describes what that joy is. But I believe this passage at least gives us hints toward what that joy is. Because it speaks of the immediate response of Jesus when the darkness has fully fallen. When this journey to the cross is imminent. No passage so clearly articulates what that joy was because it leads us into the deepest recesses of the heart of Jesus at that moment. Let's pray. Our Father, your word is truth. Drive it home in my life and each of our lives. May we today see the heartbeat of Jesus Christ that we might join our heartbeats with his. May we see his response in the darkness so that we might respond in the same ways in the darknesses in our lives. Certainly there's no comparison between the darkness of Jesus and the darknesses we face, but there can be that comparison between the way he responds and we respond. Lead us, O oh God, this morning. Share this truth with us through your spirit in a way that goes far beyond the words that I could speak today. Amen. If you asked me two weeks ago, what's the joy in Jesus' heart that he was looking at when he went to the cross? I would say two things. The glory of God. He knew that God the Father would be glorified at the cross. And his love for us. His love for people, his provision for sin. When he died, he took the sins of the world upon himself and paid for those so that we could have eternity with God. Those were in his heart. But as I studied this passage, I saw both of those elements. But I saw a third. And that is that through the cross, Jesus Christ establishes the church wherein his love can be manifested before the world, even though he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. His love can be manifested by the way we love one another. So we're going to see three things this morning. We're going to look at the glory of God, the new commandment of, our, of us loving one another, and third, the provision of Jesus Christ for sinners. Those were the three things that were in his heart, I believe. So let's start. The glory of God, verse 31 of John 13 reads, When he had gone out, that's Judas, Jesus said, 
Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. Judas's going out set everything in motion for the cross to occur. Jesus knew that well. And so what's the first thoughts in Jesus' mind? They're not about himself. I mean, not about the suffering he's going to endure. It's not about the humiliation he's going to experience. The first thought in his mind is, this will glorify my Father. The irony is that he's not going to be glorified by his disciples. He's not going to be glorified by the Jews. He's not going to be glorified by the Romans. He's going to be utterly humiliated and shamed by them. The irony is his glory rises and shines brighter through his humiliation. Instead of being proclaimed Messiah, he's condemned as a blasphemer, as a false prophet. Instead of being honored, he's made a laughingstock by the soldiers who play games with him. Instead of receiving the gold crown worthy of the king of kings, he received the crown of thorns. Instead of hearing more hosannas from the crowds, he hears, crucify him, crucify him. Instead of his followers staying by his side, they betray him, deny him, and cower in an upper room hiding far from him, ashamed of him. Instead of dining with dignitaries, he is crucified on a cross representing the curse of God between two thieves. And instead of God rising up when those at the foot of the cross say, if you're the Messiah, save yourself and prove it to us. Instead of God the Father swooping down and sending legions of angels Jesus cries out, why have you forsaken me? That moment does not look like glory at all. But it is. Now is the Son of Man glorified. And God is glorified in him. Jesus never sought glory. He will be glorified. But he sees his glory as the means and the avenue to the glory of his Father, because that's what's utmost in his heart. John, 50, uh, John 8, verse 50, Jesus says, I do not seek my own glory. There's one who seeks it. He's judged. Jesus never sought his own glory, but the Father sought Jesus' glory. The Father doesn't seek his glory, but Jesus seeks his glory. They're intimately tied together. And that's the way it's been from eternity past. The Father and Son have had an eternal love relationship where they truly considered one another more important than themselves. They sought the glory and honor of each other. And now that is coming to pass. That's first and foremost in the mind of Jesus Christ. Now, when we think of the word glory and glorifications, it sounds intangible to us sometimes. So, 
think in terms of an award banquet. And the people who receive awards are honored. They're glorified. They're, they're lifted up. And what happens at those awards is you might have something like this. We're giving the award for the, uh, the best all-around student. This student was captain of three sports in all conference in two of them and all state in one of them. They were consistently received high honors and are going to a most prestigious university. Beyond that, they are, were voted by their class as the most friendly person, the most loved person. And they serve the poor, going on countless mission trips to all portions of the world to be there alongside the poor. What we see there is a person being glorified, lifted up by the explanation of who and what that person has done. S. Lewis Johnson said, Glorification is simply the manifestation of the attributes of an individual. So if the Son of Man is glorified, then we see in him the manifestation of the attributes of the Son of Man. And if God is glorified in him, we see in him the manifestation of his attributes. Every attribute of deity is superlatively magnified in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we might say even intensified in the darkness. Jesus' glory is shown by the way he lived out those final hours in utter humility as he took the, the whipping, in utter compassion as he looked down upon his mother and provided for her while he was in agony on the cross. In utter grace and forgiveness as he looked at those who were mocking him at the foot of the cross and said, Father, forgive them. In utter grace to disciples who denied him and fled. In utter love to see the sacrifice and what he endured for us. We see the justice of God that Jesus Christ in his justice is willing to pay. We see the holiness of God as he lived a sinless life that made him worthy of being a sacrifice for all of us. We could go on and on, but it is in this darkness that we see the fullest display of the love of Jesus the glory of Jesus. And it's true of the Father as well. We might, we might wonder, well, how is the Father glorified in the Son when Jesus is the one who did it all? Well, in two ways. One, Jesus is the perfect representation of the Father's character. He is a duplicate. He'll say, in chapter 14, he'll say, uh, if you're looking for the Father, well, you've seen him in me. So the Father has all the attributes of the Son. And secondly, the sacrifice of the Father is actually greater than the sacrifice of the Son. 
And that's because a father would rather suffer than see his son suffer. A father would rather die than see his son die. That's why when Paul in Romans 5 talks about the sacrifice of Christ, he says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. For God so loved the world, he sent his son. God agonized as his son did. You know, during the daytime, we hardly notice if a street light is on. But as dusk comes, we begin to realize the light is there. And as it grows darker and darker, the light seems to shine brighter and brighter. And as darkness encompasses everything else, underneath that light, it shines brilliantly and provides our way. When Jesus enters into this darkness, his light shines more brill brilliantly than ever and is more visible than ever. If he was concerned about the glory he was going to get on earth, this would have shattered him, but he wasn't. His eyes were toward the Father and what he could accomplish for the Father. So what kept Jesus going? His desire for God's glory and his knowledge that what he went through would glorify the Father. Secondly, that he would create at the foot of the cross a new people, a new family who would continue his love and be a continuing manifestation of his love to the world even when he's gone. And so he tells the disciples, I'm leaving, but I'm leaving my love behind in you. Verse 34, he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You're also to love one another. In Jesus' heart has always been love. It's been love with the Father, and love in creation of us, and love for us, love for humanity. He is love. Manifested to us. But he's going to be with the Father. He's leaving that love in the hands of his disciples to live it out in front of the world to continue to be that bright light. You see, our love for one another is the tangible imprint of Jesus' life and his love as he ascends. It's a continuing gift to the world that Jesus desired to leave behind. Now, it says, I leave you a new commandment. And we think, well, there's a lot in the Old Testament where it talks about love, doesn't it? It talks about love your neighbor. That's a command that undergirds just about all the commands along with loving God. So what's new about this commandment? And D.A. Carson points to three things that I think he's accurate with. The first is that Jesus is establishing a new covenant, 
A covenant not of the letter of the law, but of the spirit of the law. That it's not simply loving in acts, but it's a love that has gripped our hearts and transformed our hearts that flows out of the spirit within us that the spirit of God is ministering to. Secondly, he talks about this commandment being to a new community. A community of people established as one at the foot of the cross. One that is called the body of Christ. And when we think about that, the body of Christ, what does that mean? It means Jesus didn't leave his body here. It resurrected and he ascended. But he did leave his body here. It's us. And it's to be manifested through our love for one another. But Carson goes on. He said, it's not just that the standard is new. But that standard is Christ and his love. But more so, it's a command designed to reflect the relationship of love that exists between the Father and Son. What he's saying here is, I want you to love one another the way I loved you. In John 15, he's going to say, as the Father loved me, so I loved you. And so what he's saying is, the way I have loved you is the same way the Father has loved me. What we are to exhibit to the world is not just Jesus' love for us, but the Father's love for the Son. We are to enter into that Trinitarian relationship of love and show that to the world. That's what Jesus is giving to us. See, all love is not the same. Jesus' love is superlative. It's off the charts. Even the love in the Old Testament that says, love your neighbor as yourself, does not measure up to the love that Jesus is talking about that we are to have for one another. Some have looked at this and said, why didn't Jesus, if he's, if he's trying to leave the imprint of his love on a community, why, why doesn't he say, love your enemy? I mean, that's a more sacrificial love. We, a lot of us can love people who love us, but it's what an incredible love to love your enemies. And this command does not abrogate that at all. I mean, we know Jesus said, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecuted you. But I think because our love is to reflect that of the Trinity, it needs to be a reciprocal love. See, if we love our enemies, they don't necessarily love us back. It's not reciprocal. But in the Trinity, the Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Father deeply, committed to one another. That can only happen in a body of believers where we will respond to love with love. So, let's look at the love of Jesus for, for his disciples. His compassion, his empathy, 
his commitment, his faithfulness, his sacrifice, his humility, his acceptance, his standing for truth and teaching them in truth. If you want to see Jesus' love, read 1 Corinthians 13. But also we see his love in the one another statements in Scripture. The one another is the way we are to treat each other in the body of Christ. And there is a number of them. I'm just going to read a couple handfuls. Now, as I read these one another commands in Scripture, these are the marching orders to the church. They are marching orders of how to love one another. But as I read them, think of Jesus. How Jesus exhibited these qualities in his relationship with his disciples. Okay. Be devoted to one another. Honor one another above yourselves. Live in harmony with one another. Build up one another. Accept one another. Admonish one another. Care for one another. Serve one another. Bear one another's burdens. Forgive one another. Be patient with one another. Speak the truth and love with one another. Be kind and compassionate toward one another. Consider others better than yourselves. Look to the interests of one another. Comfort one another. Encourage one another. Stir up one another in love and good works. Clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. Pray for one another. We see the reflection of Jesus in these commands. The marching orders for the church of how we show that love for one another. Does the world see that love? I hope so. It saw it in the early days of the Christians. Uh, Tertullian, who wrote about a century after John wrote, talked about how the pagans marveled at the love they saw among Christians. He wrote, see, they say, how they love one another, how they are ready even to die for one another. Wow. That's the love of Christ manifested in the body of Christ. But it isn't always the case. Two centuries after that, Christism wrote about the relationship, how the relationship among Christians actually soured unbelievers toward Christianity. He said, even now, there is nothing else that causes the heathen to stumble except there's no love. Their own doctrines, they've long condemned themselves. Like manner, they admire our doctrines. But they're hindered by our mode of life, our lack of love, the way we treat one another. I am thankful to God that Westgate is much more like Tertullian's quote than it is Christism's quote. But of course, as we read these one another's, I shrink back and say, oh, there is so much more, so much more for me to give to you, for us to give to one another.
that the world that looks in might see the love of Jesus Christ. What an incredible calling. I don't have it in me. We don't have it in us. But it is in the gospel. John says in his book, we love because he first loved us. It's when we understand the heights, the height and depth and width and breadth of the love of God that begins to transform our hearts that this love becomes possible. It's why we need to, to ground ourselves in the gospel and drink deeply of the gospel and stay in the gospel of God's love because then it becomes reality in our lives. Which leads us to the third feature of I think was the joy set before Jesus. And that is his provision for us as sinners. His love for us, his death on the cross for us. Now you don't immediately, we don't immediately see that in this passage when we look at uh, this prediction of Peter's denial. That's because we haven't read the next verse. See, it's unfortunate that there's a chapter break here because John means the next passage to be united to this one. After he predicts Peter's denial, his next words are, I go to prepare a place for you in my father's house. See, his response to Peter isn't condemnation. It's there is a place in the house of God for you and for every one of you. Because it isn't about your sin. It's about what I'm going to do on the cross to provide for that sin. And so we see here the joy of Jesus Christ is his love for us, his love for his disciples. And the cost he paid was his love, was out of his love for all of us. See, what happens here is Jesus says, I'm going to be leaving. And... Then he gives the new commandment, love one another. And, and Peter doesn't respond to, oh, love one another. How should we love one another? No, he immediately goes to the statement of, you're going you're gonna to leave? Well, if you're going to leave, uh, what do you mean? He says, well, I'm going and you can't come with me. And Peter says, I can come with you. I can come with you. As we read in verses 37 and 38, Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I'll lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will crow, will not crow till you've denied me three times. See, Peter's frailties, his sin is exposed. He pompously pledged that he could follow Jesus. He's just, like all of us, had an inflated view of himself. He says, I'm righteous. I'm faithful. I will follow you no matter where you go, even if it costs me my life. I'm, I'm better than these other disciples. They're, they're not saying anything. But I'll step forward and I'll tell you I would die with you. In fact, I'm going to protect you. They try to kill you. I'm going to protect you. I'll pull out my sword. I'll protect you. And Jesus says, truly, truly, no, you won't. You're going to deny me. Peter's betrayal of Jesus is second only to Judas's betrayal of Jesus. 
It's clear Peter deserved condemnation. Yet Jesus' next words are not about judgment, but about hope. John 14, 2. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. We'll unpack this next week. But again, it's unfortunate there's a chapter break because John is tying these together. Peter, you're going to fail me. There's a place for you in heaven. That's what I'm going to pay for. Jesus doesn't rail against his sin. He's looking for what he's going to provide for the sinner. The cross was in Jesus' mind when he announces that God will be glorified. The cross is in the mind his mind when he tells his disciples that he's going to leave them but they can continue as the manifestation of his love to the world. And the cross is in the mind when Jesus predicts Peter's betrayal and offers the forgiveness that will follow that leads Peter to heaven. You know, one of my favorite songs is called I Was In His Mind. Would you like me to sing it? No, <laughs> no, no. Maybe I'll do the first line. I was in his mind before the worlds were made. I was in his heart when Calvary's hill he climbed. I was in his heart when he died for all mankind. Because he sought me, because he loved me, because he loves me. That's a joy set before Jesus. He endured the, the darkness of that day. Of all the darkness where Satan thought he had the victory. But the light of Christ shines. Darkness could not overcome it. And he went because of the joy set before him. First things in his heart. The glory of God. His provision for us. And the fact that he could leave a church behind that loved one another the way he loved them. We all go through dark periods. Nothing compared to what Jesus went through. But for us, they're dark. It could be personal darkness. It could be national darkness. Darkness can't overtake the light. The light shines brighter and brighter the greater the darkness comes. How do we live in the darkness the way Jesus Christ did? It's because we desire God's glory above our own security. It's because we've experienced God's love to the, to the heights and depths of Christ himself. And we have a gospel of that love to share with the world. And we have an incredible new commandment to love one another. John 1.5 said, The light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it and never will. Our Father, we thank you for your word, for your truth, for the heartbeat of Jesus that we see today. May that be our heartbeat. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.